This is episode 16 with Museum of Crypto Art founder, Colburn Bell. Pack told us red is meant to provoke, you know, let's just like our collection is at a point where we are, are happy. Let's provoke. Hello, crypto art world, and welcome to the Outer Realm, a Second Realm Studio podcast. I'm your host, Eric Paul Rhodes, a former experienced designer turned crypto artist. And each week we'll talk to artists and professionals in the crypto art space. Thank you for spending time with me today, and now let the show begin. My guest today is Colborn Bell, and we talk about everything from growing up in California to his experience as a trader and the origins of the Museum of Crypto Art. I'm here with uh, Colborn Bell. Welcome to the show, buddy. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this is going to be good. I'm I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, like I said before, pre-show, I like to start the conversation talking a little bit about like who you were as a kid. Um, you know, if I like to pick an age randomly, let's say like seven years old, right? What's seven years old, Colborn? Think about uh, who you are today and what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, so seven-year-old Colborn. Uh, you know, I was I was born and raised actually in in Malibu, California, to just you know some amazing, lovely, uh, working class parents. Um, you know, I went to a little you know elementary school there, right? So you know, I was I was there all my life, and it was always kind of the you know the kids that you were playing you know little league baseball with basketball with that was just the the group so um kind of like this little tight-knit family one sister she's amazing and uh yeah you know same same friends a lot of them actually ended up you know getting into blockchain along the way and are doing uh some some various things so is your family still three thousand miles away still three thousand miles away you know, I was a bit of the black sheep. I came out to, to New York City for, for university. Uh, and I mean, actually, it, it kind of all stems back to a, a trip. You know, I played baseball growing up, uh, went to a, a baseball tournament in Cooperstown, where the Hall of Fame is at 12 years old. And my best friend's father was born and raised in Brooklyn. He, he brought us out there. So I just remember being hit with him and my best friend at the time in New York City, and it was like 11 p.m. at night, and the city was still alive. And, uh, you know, I, we went by like FAO Schwartz, and I just fell in love with that, that energy. Uh, and I always kind of knew I, I wanted to come back and, and explore it, and I did get the opportunity to, and I've been largely out here ever since. So at 12, you sort of caught the New York City bug. How long between 12 years old and you arriving permanently uh, was it? Yeah, I, I, I started school at 18. Oh, so six years later. Not bad. Yeah. 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 Um, so uh, it, you don't have to tell me where you went to school. Uh, what did you study in school? I was, you know, it's funny because I originally came into school, you know, it was just growing up my father was always like dr bell dr bell he was kind of you know he was a hard ass he uh would you know he coached all the all the teams i was on and he was just like very almost military in in his style of parenting which is like a far 
decry from his uh, more like hippie upcoming. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, he, he always, you know, would say like paging Dr. Bell. And that's like when I knew dinner was. Uh, so, you know, I went in wanting to study neuroscience and behavior, got to that first chemistry class. And I was like, fuck this, no way. <laughs> like these kids are like way too, too intense. And I don't want to spend four years in New York City competing with them. So uh, I had a passion for psychology. I always knew I wanted to study psychology. And I was like, well, that's, that's never going to get me a job. So I might as well like add on economics. Uh, so I was double major psych and econ. So is that, do you, did you end up like getting, starting a career in economics or did you end up moving down the psychology path? What did you do? So, you know, it's, it's funny at, uh, at school, I had the opportunity, you know, to work in a, a primate cognition lab, which, which was rather informative. You know, we had these, these rhesus macaques performing cognition experiments uh and that like contrast to being with like people in new york city i was drawing like a lot of similarities and, and i love that but no i actually i took the first it was 2010 when i graduated it was pretty peak great recession uh so i just didn't find that many opportunities coming out of school knew I wanted to be in New York City, had, had signed a, a lease, like literally in a windowless basement on 14th and 8th. Uh, and I took the first job that I got and it was really just like this chop shop investment banking job <laughs> where like, I don't know if you've seen the, the movie Boiler Room, but all day, you know, this guy had... Um, you know, he had taken a, a, he worked at Bear Stearns when Bear Stearns collapsed. He grabbed as many like client files out of their vault as possible, like brought them over to, you know, his new employment. And we were just cold calling all of the old Bear Stearns clients, pitching them on, on these, you know, it was like shares of Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, but pre-IPO. Um, and I, I was there for about six months. Did you get an opportunity to invest in any of those pre-IPO? I mean, I was making like 15 bucks an hour. <laughs> you know, like, what, well, I, I had no money, you know, what was I going to do a hundred bucks? Um, yeah, I was just like scraping and surviving in, in the city. And, and uh, I look back on that, that very fondly. It, it made me a lot of who I, I was. I mean, like even it was a, what they call a carriage house. There were four of us guys in this, you know, building, I, I had the basement room and, and, you know, it was a bit of a, a party atmosphere, right? So uh, I, you know, I had this little like hole of peace and quiet, but I remember like, you know, I would hear the rats running through the walls and the subway train would, would shake it. And, uh, and it was like 800 bucks a month, but I was just stoked to be there. So I think 2010, I was living in Manhattan as well. Uh, I was living on 181st Street in Washington Heights. Sure. And uh, I, I, I know you're, I didn't wake up to rats, but I definitely woke up to cockroaches uh, yeah. in my kitchen because I accidentally left the fucking window open. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and it's like it left a crack. And, you know, that just that that's New York City living at its cheapest, at its finest. Yeah. 
I, I spent a lot of time up in that neighborhood because that's actually where the, uh, the research facility was. Uh, near Fort Tryon Park up there? It was at that uh, like Columbia Medical Center, I think like 163, all the way on Riverside. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. What a Riverside, what a beautiful, beautiful drive. Yeah, spectacular. Yeah, and all those homes there, I always, uh, I always like, I don't know, I admired maybe some of the old money that was living there at the time. I, I, I totally, totally. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, that's, that's underrated property, I think, in Manhattan. If anybody's looking for a hot investment tip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah. So, so you're, you're in New York City, you're, you're probably like 22, 23, you're at this carriage house doing some boiler room type stuff, shilling, uh, you know, pre-IPO, Facebook, Twitter, all that good stuff. What's, yep. what's sort of the next step you take after that? I mean, I, I, I broke, I, I like, I hated what I was doing. I hated the guy that I was working for. Uh, he was making like hundreds of thousands of dollars a month and, and paying us peanuts. And I was like, this is, this is a total joke. So, you know, I, I had a friend, you know, who invited me to, you know, come visit him in London for the weekend right? He, he flew me out there. Uh, and I, I just stayed. I just stayed with him out there and called my job and, and told them, I mean, there were two things happening at the time. One was that we had this terrible, like industrial steam leak in this room. So it was unlivable. It was, it was like living in a sauna. Uh, and our landlord, you know, couldn't care less about it. So yeah, I went there. I called my boss. I'm like, look, I'm, I'm out here. I'm not coming back. You got to find somebody new. Um, so I was out there for like two weeks. And, and then I, you know, was doing some thinking about my life and really came back to, you know, I, this is, I'm not going to be this financial person. I can't stand like the moral implications of, of what we're doing. I can't see myself living this life. Uh, and I actually got to, you know, just searching around, connected with a, a woman um, who got me a, you know, a consulting job at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Uh, and it was kind of like a return to what I thought was, you know, more noble, genuine work. And we were building, it was super cool. We were building an infrastructure bank project in East Africa. Uh, focusing on, you know, hard energy, you know, building roads and, and hydro plants. And I spent two years there, again, you know, working for, for peanuts. But, you know, in those two years, that was the length that it took for us to get a $5 million project approved. And the bureaucracy of that system, right, bouncing budgets, bouncing timelines, bouncing roadmaps up and down so people can rubber stamp, was like, this is a tremendous waste of time and talent. And these bureaucrats just sit in these positions kind of like holding on to, you know, the, the power of authority, um, but never actually acting. So, you know, from there, I kind of hybridized these, these two ideas that yes, we need like private companies and, and capital markets to effectuate change, 
but like we can't lean into this government bureaucracy because it moves too slowly to actually meet the needs of what needs to be done. Uh, so for a, a brief period of time, I moved back to California and joined a, a wealth management firm founded by vegan Buddhists. And they, you know, espoused to their clients, uh, you know, do more with your money, right? To value align your money. Um, and I kind of, you know, I worked my way behind the scenes, kind of became the, the head trader there, was looking at like a billion dollars under management every morning and reallocating portfolios and, and moving stuff around. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's, it's all good and well to say you have a value aligned portfolio. But when you dig into the details, you know, you're really just buying the, the total global stock markets, uh, bond markets, and pulling out like alcohol, tobacco, firearms. And it's, it's low effort and it's kind of like a marketing gimmick so, so people can, can sleep at night. And, you know, you realize that what people, of course, really only care about is returns. So you sort of like over the years as an investor, uh, you've got to sort of see the different sort of power, um, the power struggle layers of, of how money is, is shifted throughout the world. So you've, you've got the bureaucracy aspect, the boiler room aspect. Then you think, okay, I'm in California. I'm working for this vegan Buddhist monk. Uh, and they've got a, you know, it's, it's, what you call it? a value? I wrote it down. Value, you know, we're working with yeah, value aligned investing. Yeah, value aligned investing. And what you realize is value aligned investing is kind of like a marketing term. And as you say, you take out alcohol, to, you take out the ATF and they feel good about it. Right. Right. Uh, so what happens next? Like, how I, I see you shifting, like, and this is just my, my perspective, but I see your psychology interplaying with your, you know, when the way I think about psychology is people who typically enter psychology have some sort of uh, empathy for the human, human understanding, human relationships, you know, the context in which we live. And I see this as a thread through all of your, uh, your career so far. Would you agree with that? Or is that something I'm just sort of pulling out? Look, I mean, it goes back to my parents, right? It really does. Like they were just incredibly, you know, loving, kind, generous. You know, my father had like a little hippie construction firm where he would only kind of work for friends. Um, and, you know, he, he valued his own time to like be independent and not kind of like slave or, or care for money. And we got just incredibly lucky in that, you know, my grandma had a house in Malibu in the 50s. And then, you know, my mother had the opportunity with my father to buy it. And, and that's kind of how we ended up there. It's not, uh, it was, it was more by luck than by means. Um, so, you know, that I, I, that's that value, right. Kind of like the, the human value, um, and not sacrificing like a, a life and people for the sake of profit. Uh, and you know, it's, I see so much in, in my life, like these big contrasting elements, right? Having this, this upbringing, going to New York, right? Doing the investment banking, going to the UN, trying to like continue to merge these, these ways and, and find that path. And, 
I think you're right. I think both like psychology and economics, very disparate, um, but like integrating those studies into something, something more holistic. Yeah, I, uh, I've spent my life trying to find interdisciplinary relationships between fine art and technology. Uh, yeah. And then I've always had an interest in psychology. I didn't study it in school, but it is my primary reading uh, for for nonfiction. I read like 50 to 100 books a year. Wow. Um, and that's like the main category. I just I just love reading. I love reading it. But wh where I'm going with this is how, you know, at what point or where where do you think you found this alignment or have you are you still seeking that alignment? I think I'm getting better. Right. So from, you know, from the wealth management management job, I jumped and uh, signed a like a, a five year contract with a, a family office where I was running, you know, their their U.S. investments. And this is kind of when I, I started to find, you know, the, the best niche for me, which was being an advisor to ultra high net worth people to, you know, I guess, allow them, comfort them to take the risk in emerging technologies, right? We did a lot of clean energy investments. Um, you know, we were like just doing a lot of early stage, cool venture deals. And that's kind of where I understood, again, the types of people that I want to work with, um, you know, the stage of ideas that I want to work with. And, you know, it was in, in that period where I also, you know, found Ethereum and, and made, you know, my first investment there and took literally like everything I had and, and threw it in at the time. Um, and because I had this investment banking background and because I had this wealth management background, you know, I was building what I called diversified portfolios of crypto assets. And I understood, uh, you know, the, the ICO innovation in that you were able to, at a very early stage, begin to like fractionalize and assign value to those coins. And those coins ultimately represent that, that network value and that value of an idea. So I was just investing in everything. Um, and, you know, I, I had connections to, you know, kind of this LA tech and film scene and was getting good deal flow and, and was advising people and, you know, played the, the ICO boom and bubble um, while I was doing this, this family office work. Uh, and, you know, in that period is, is when I first got involved with Decentraland and that introduced me to the idea of virtual worlds. Uh, I came back to, you know, that position that I had in 2020 at the start when they launched. Um, and that was when I was looking around and, and found crypto voxels and found Somnium space, fell in love with uh, the aesthetic of Somnium space, right? And then from there, you know, it was, it was like stepping into a, a open digital expanse. And there's, you know, I'm not an, uh, a passive person, right? I'm not going to sit around and let other people manage my investments. No, you know, like I'm going to go, go work for it. And that's, you know, when the idea came is like, what really is the world that I want to see? 
you know, what is like the escape valve that people that are in this physical reality want to step into in a virtual reality environment? It's not going to be like a replication. It's not going to be a, a hyper-commercialized world. You're not going to go into VR to go learn about some new protocol. No, you want to go into like reawaken that imagination to have a beautiful experience to like step into the unknown. And that was really where, you know, the genesis of the museum came about. And then, you know, the collecting of art NFTs as a means to establish a relationship with the digital creators that we would kind of like to invite into this new emergent metaverse frontier. So you, you are a prolific collector. I think it's fair to say that. Um, but I want to step back before we get to there. I want to talk a little bit about uh, how you bridge the gap from ICO, you know, digital uh, cryptocurrency, and then you find Decentraland and Somnium space. You know, how, how, how did that happen? Like, what was the impetus for that? Um. I just liked to be involved in all the deals and kind of know what was going on, right? I had, you know, a, a tight group of clients who I was advising and, and helping them manage their portfolios at the time. Um, and it was just exciting. It was a perfect union of, of my skills to, to be in these markets. Um, you know, I was an exceptional trader and uh you know i understood i guess the the value of the digital uh i didn't have to to hold it to to need it or want it um i was always of course incredibly concerned with you know federal reserve policies and the u.s debt and uh you know having having seen you know the the effects of the economic crisis in a place like new york city I had a, a big distrust for these large financial institutions. So I really was committed to, you know, building a better, more fair system in parallel um, and, and beginning to, I guess, you know, espouse that and, and eat my own dog food, right? And along the way, there were, you know, there were wins and losses and, you know, it all... It wasn't incredibly, you know, like financially ludicrous for me, uh, but I just enjoyed the spirit of the learning and the engagement with the technology. I mean, going back, right, it reminded me of like Kazaa and, and LimeWire and, and like the, <laughs> the, the power of, of torrenting networks and, uh, you know, the, the free sharing of like information uh, and, and transacting financial value on the internet, it's, uh, you know, I think, I don't know, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. So maybe I'll just pause. So were Decentraland and Somnian space part of, and like, did you learn them through a client or like, were you investing in them or just sort of? So I did the, I did the MANA ICO for Decentraland. I, I did, I participated in the land auction. Um, and then, you know, 2020, they had this big treasure hunt event and I participated and I was like, okay, this is, you know, this is cool. Like, this is, this is fun. This is cool. I like the social aspects. Uh, and then everybody, of course, 
you know, we, we went into lockdown. And, and like thinking from there, you know, a lot of money hosted a, a opening party at his hotel in crypto voxels, right? Where there was like incredible music. There might've been a hundred people there. And I was like, oh my God, this is, you know, 100%, you know, a glimpse into the type of, of future that I want to see. I've, I've always believed in, right, sustainability. Uh, and, you know, I don't need to fly to whatever, Hong Kong to go meet with investors, lawyers, like, let's just meet in the metaverse. Um, and, and, and just starting to think of, like the, the, the future of social spaces, right? And how we can like reduce or leverage technology to, you know, reduce our impact and still have like a similar feeling of connection and togetherness and experience. And, and how do we like facilitate those experiences from inside our homes? So you have like this model sort of you start to see uh the blockchain and what's happening in the metaverse as this like future manifestation of what the peer-to-peer -peer stuff with limewire and even before that with maybe napster was happening but this right. is happening one-to-one -one. uh you know human to human as opposed to computer to computer right um, and so you start to get more involved in this emerging space and you start to get introduced to artists. Uh, at what point do you begin to see the opportunity to collect artists as both like uh, an investment and uh, like the future of the space? You know, in the beginning, right, it was so different. It was like nobody was catching bids. Everybody was just minting art for fun. We're all in there experimenting. Um, I'm like a pretty fastidious and thorough. You're you're gonna you're gonna get this right. Like I loved digging for the investments. I loved learning the ideas, and I took that rigor and like brought it into super rare. And I turned over every corner of these markets and looked through like every artist on those pages and like anything I liked. I would just kind of shoot you know a point one bit because we know the blockchain is forever, right? So I wanted to say like, I see this, I'm here, like I'll be your first bid uh, and let's have the blockchain record this forever. And like, I don't care if, if you accept it, I'll pay whatever the 50 cent gas fee, just to like tell you that I see you, I think your art is great and you know what, you're doing here i agree with it's it was it was just like like a vote right um and yeah yeah i mean there was a there was kind of like a purity to that where it didn't really care about the investment or the money or saw it as that thesis all i really wanted to do was was take these assets and bring them to this digital world and I think, you know, we were the one of the first, I think we were probably the first like big collector to show a more premium aesthetic around use case and utility, right? Where most people were just sending these things to a vault 
like a cold storage wallet. You know, art is meant to be seen and, and shared. So let's, you know, start telling the stories of artists and let's start sending these pieces out through social networks. And let's put like all of these, you know, technologies together to create this ecosystem. And it's funny because people come and they tell me like, I feel you guys are like a team of 20 people. And it's just like, you know, me and a couple others on, on our computers and phones, right? The reach seems much more massive. And I've always been, you know, pretty obsessed with, you know, how does the individual augment and excel like with these, these technologies? And that's part of just, uh, you know, metaverse philosophy in general. Yeah, I, uh, when I was first starting out, a lot of people were asking me, you know, how many people are you? as second realm and i'm like uh yeah. i'm just just one dude yeah like you know i know it makes you know i don't know i'm i'm on all the time so maybe that's why right you, you feel it uh but it's just me you know there's no studio behind me i i and i think that that happens because uh two things i think that happens because the technology allows for that so you know we can create content that hangs around for a long period of time and gives people the perception that that we're, we're active when we're actually sleeping right yeah uh, and and then the the oh see i told you he would come <laughs> come here nice uh and then uh you know the other is i think people just don't realize their own true power in in what they can do like they think it takes uh stop bud Excuse me one second. I'm good. He's trying to hump my leg. <laughs> He's getting a little excited. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, just just like the, the perception is, the perception is not the reality. Like they think that there's teams behind people doing this when it's really just, you know, you and me sort of yeah. doing the due diligence. Um, how much time do you think you spent doing your own due diligence in a very, like when you were, you know, hunting super rare and, uh, you know, building that, that portfolio. Look, man, I'm like in the middle of the forest in a cow town in upstate New York, right in the middle of quarantine. Uh, you know, I would wake up at like, you know, when the sun shone through it's six in the morning and I would work till midnight every night and I would do it seven days a week. And I did it for, you know, over a year. I just loved it. I just loved it. I was, you know, four years in like hyper paced ICO game, like the highs and the lows of it all people, you know, coming back and asking me, you know, what happened to this? We need to do the accounting. We need to do the taxes. Like, you know, my own personal tax return was like 400 pages long. You know, and I like, I'm like, I can't do this. I can't live like this. This is, uh, you know, a nightmare. So it was also like a very conscious effort to transition out of the world of asset management and investments into working more with creatives and kind of manifesting and designing more of the life that I wanted for myself. But in a way, you're still managing assets, but there are different kinds of assets. It's just the people that I work with are better people, you know, like I will, I will anytime, anywhere, like 
hop on a call with an artist and give them advice, right? I love that. I love that. I want to see all the artists in this space be successful, right? I want them to have the best chance. I want to like connect them with potential collectors. And uh, I, I, it's, it's so much more human than, you know, what was the return on this investment? And, um, you know, it's great to get like wealthy people involved with ideas at early stages, especially when those ideas and those companies align more closely with the vision that you want to see, because they'll help and support and grow and, and be incredibly value additive to, to what you want to see. But it's a different thing entirely to like connect with artists on that human level around their art. And there is nobody out there that will ever say, you know, what the value of an artwork is. Right. And, and I love well, that. They'll, they'll say what they think the value of an artwork is, sure. but uh, I think, I think, and I don't mean to cut you off, but I guess I do mean to cut you off. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I just, I it's like, I get, I get super. Uh, this is something I'm really passionate about when, when we talk about people valuing artworks, it's totally subjective. hundred percent. Yeah. And, you know, um, there are lots of people out there who say this artwork has value and it could be for a number of reasons. It could be because of where it was collected. It could be because of who it was collected by. It could be because of who it was created by, the story behind it, the, the rarity behind it, all of that stuff together creating a story. Like uh, there's so many different facets to it, but um uh, I don't remember what I was, I just sort of had to jump in. I don't know why, but. I mean, look, all this, I love this idea. Let's, let's unpack this because, you know, for in 2015, I, you know, was going through something and started this art project, right? Which is where I would take dollar bills and I would use a Japanese water marbling technique called suminagashi. And I would print these bills with these, hyper colorful you know moving water designs and i over those five years i printed thousands and i would just go and i would give them away to people to friends to people that i i met people that like i respected and connected with uh and they loved it right they're like this is the coolest thing i've ever seen like one i've never thought about money like this and they send me the pictures of the bills that i've given them and they've kept them and they've treasured them and like, what is it? It's a dollar. Like you can give somebody a dollar, you can go get like a, a hamburger from McDonald's, right? But uh, you know, what is the value of the that artwork? It's in that person's interpretation of it and in like the giving it away. And then like, how do, you know, how can we tie this all back? Well, you go back to kind of what like Max and Robness did in the beginning and they sold their artwork for nothing, right? And, and I saw that and I just loved that idea. Like if you love something, if you treasure something, like the best thing you can do is you can give it away, right? And, and then like come, come what may, but that's something that you created and, and gave to the world instead of something that you created and sold to the world. One of the things that I, I joined the trash art movement, like right as, uh, you know, 
I was already kind of hanging out with them online, but as as soon as Max and Rob got kicked, as soon as Rob got kicked off, super rare. Uh, that's when it sort of all like clicked for me. And what I loved about the trash art movement wasn't like, oh, we were anti super rares. When we ended up moving to Rarible, we were doing just that. We were like sending each other because it was thirty cents to mint. Yeah. Yeah. We're like sending each other gifts, minting conversations. Like it was just about the the giving the art away to the people, and we were so involved in, you know, making bringing other people into the space and like reintroducing them, introducing artists to, hey, look, okay, maybe Super is a walled garden now, but come over here and let's let's like mint some stuff. Um, you know, and I really love that about Max and Rob. I, I think they still do that to a certain degree. You know, as we get, as they become more, as people become more aware of who they are and, and their their brand grows, of course, their work is going to be uh, more expensive. People are going to want it, uh, you know, invest in it. But that that was a moment in time that was really beautiful and can, I don't think could ever be captured again. Uh I was, I was right there alongside you guys because, you know, I remember when the first like rareable leaderboard came out and it was buyers and sellers. And, you know, I have the screenshot on my computer, but it was like top buyer, Colborn 70 ETH. And then it was maybe like Sats Moon soon at, uh, at like 12 Ethereum. I'm like, oh my God, like I spent a ton of money on trash art. Uh, and I, I don't regret it for a moment because I think that that little moment in time, you're right, won't ever be replicated again. Uh, and it's like incredibly important and, and special. And it brings obviously a whole other conversation of like, what is art and censorship and curation and like, let's just give you know, the tools to people to allow them to create and express themselves freely. And beyond that, to have a permanent digital record and representation. Um, you know, art by and large has always been very impermanent. Uh, and, you know, it's another reason why I like Pixel Chain because it's literally embedded in the Ethereum code and this artwork has the chance to live quite literally till the sun explodes. It doesn't even require an IPFS server. It's cool. Uh, super cool. Uh, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, let's talk a little bit about Super Rare, but where I want to go with it first is, your, I, would you say that uh, your collection uh, thesis has changed over the last year from sort of like, mass collecting really cool stuff to being really selective it's just everything got more expensive <laughs> you know like <laughs> i i think i collected something like 350 pieces on super rare for an average price of 150 bucks that's that's massively huge you know it's ridiculous and now you know yeah now i i have to pay thousands of dollars for works that i like and you know is it a management nightmare and a curation nightmare and am i paying you know 50 bucks to move an artwork from my metamask into a cold storage and then people are sending stuff and yeah it makes it like kind of difficult so naturally i'm being a little more selective um 
but it's good. It's good. Do you, do you find yourself still like, are you lurking around other galleries or are you primarily focused on a select few? Uh, I, I'm everywhere. I still try to be everywhere. I don't, I had a major, major falling out with Rarible. So I'm not there. Do, yeah. it, can, do you want to talk about what that falling out was or do you want to sort of like, I mean, sort I'm, of I'm happy that? to, we can kind of like un, unwind the history there. Uh, maybe, just, maybe just give like a, cause this yeah, isn't just, about, yeah, I just, just give like a high level. Yeah, I didn't respect what they did to the artists that built their platform, right? And, um, you know, this you guys came in, you, you, built, you built this marketplace. I helped build it with you. Um, and then they just piled everybody in on the back of that Rari distribution. And then it was kind of like the you know and then kind of pranksy came and was flipping crypto punks and uh and then like crypto finally and kind of like the triple x contents and uh it just diluted what i thought was cool intent right um and it's fine like everybody should be a, a creator uh and then of course you know i got scammed like again and again and again and you you kind of start to see there has to be some rigor there has to be some rigor in that there is something like original um so yeah it's all good well, i i agree with you that uh you know we we came over to the platform at a time when it was really scammy and and not really thought of um in good light at the time and we we built it up you know yeah. we built it up into a viable platform for artists for emerging artists for new artists coming into the space you know you you as the as one of the most prolific collectors on it helped build you know all of the artists up you know and um i you know they i think and this is my philosophy i'm not going to put words in your mouth uh i think rary the rary drop was their way because you know we, we all got a pretty good chunk sure. uh was their way of paying off and and moving beyond that yeah. trash art specifically yeah. and for me the nail in the coffin on their end and, and where i ended up losing a whole lot of respect for alex was that report that they put out about their history mm. and you know they mentioned osanachi and they mentioned like pranksy but they completely ignore the history of, of who made the platform viable in the first place. Yes. And uh, that was that moment uh, that I realized, you know, they're not who they were anymore. And that's okay. You know, the space shifts, they're a number, they have investors. I get that. Yep. yep. Uh, but I felt like, you know, we had done a hell of a lot of marketing for them for nothing. And, you know, we, they paid us in return. You know, but at the same time, it's like acknowledgement goes both ways. Yeah. You know, we acknowledged you for a long time and now you want to sweep it under the rug because, you know, trash art, let's be honest, has a, for some people has a negative connotation. For sure. You know, it, it blurs the lines with remixing. It blurs the lines with copyright. Yep. Uh, Max getting kicked off super rare twice uh, for copyright. 
I got I got booted off for you know doing uh, Hackatow, you know, exactly. and Benny. and Pack. Yeah. So, you know, and it's like uh, we 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 push buttons, and mm. and we help the space grow. We think by I think by me challenging helps put people on their back and say you know stand up for your word, stand up for what you're doing, stand up for why you're doing it. You know, I'm not, you know, this is, you know, an open market as far as I'm concerned, even though your, your platform may be closed. Um, this is what artists yeah. should be doing. This is what artists should be doing. They need to push us to our extremes. They need to cause that controversy. They need to make people feel certain things about certain ways and then come what may. Right. And, you know, I, I'm a, a like very, loyal nostalgic person so i'm at this point just want to make sure these stories are told and they're told in the right ways and and they don't kind of you know write over whitewash the history of of really how it was um and the beautiful thing of course is that the art is still there and the art speaks to those moments in time and those aren't going away so, you know, that's that record. And, and again, you know, you can go back and you can look at the transaction history of Rarible from inception. Like that's all our wallet addresses. So it's, uh, that's another beautiful thing ab ab about the blockchain. Yeah, it's really hard to sweep it under the rug when it's sort of like uh, out there for everybody to see. But, yeah. you know, stories, Marketing has a as a as an as a unique way of getting into people's heads. You know, stories get told, other ones get don't. Uh, that's why I find I think it's my responsibility to like host something like Trash Art Week, like I did two weeks ago, where yeah. I did you know six live panels and reintroduced a topic to an entire new audience that's never seen it before. Uh, not not to like. And and in a in a nostalgic way, not not to push buttons, but to say, hey, look, look at the look at what we did, you know, and look at Jimmy and and uh, and Max and Rob coming together, and Jimmy coming full circle and being like, maybe I should have collected some trash art, you know, like just uh, you know, I love that I love that people in this space are move you know moving towards uh, this you know new new direction. Uh, but that trash art has this moment in time and I never want to let that go. Yeah, hundred percent. It's, it's in my mind, the, one of the most important stories of this uh, because it, it paved the way for all creators to, to come in and, and bring their uh, visions and creations forward. It's so true. So let's get now enough about trash art. Uh, there's a lot of us out there. Let's talk <laughs> more about you. Uh, so you, you, what are you doing in the metaverse right now? Tell us like what kind of cool stuff you've got going on yeah, with Mocha. I mean, yeah, um, you know, Mocha, Museum of Crypto Art. Uh, we have those two kind of central buildings that, that most people know. Um, and that will just be a, a continued curation effort. Uh, over the last year, we did six artist solo shows. And those are standalone individual builds, uh, remarkably beautiful. And, you know, I think the, the one we did with Sky Golpe is where it all really came together for us. Uh, just this incredible design from, from Desiree 
uh, Sky Goldface, just beautiful portraits, hung tall. You know, Serena Tabachi did an awesome curation. Uh, and then we had a, a live stream where we were all there in VR together, going through this as if it was a real gallery show. But, you know, Artur, the founder of Somnium Space, was in Czech Republic. You know, Serena was in the UK. I was in New York. Desi was in Wyoming. And we start to get a, a, a real glimpse of this idea of like global internet communities and how people with certain knowledge sets and skills can be united in these spaces to have a very like high level discussion around technology, art, architecture, curation. Uh, and, and this is just a, a cool experience that steps outside of, of physical constraints. So, and, and then like from there, you know, we have a, a 16 artist incubator district in the North where, you know, we let these artists kind of have free reign to go build whatever exhibition space they want, hang their artwork, uh, and kind of we take some of the, the marketing responsibility in the incubator. Um, I think, you know, my next year is going to be focused more in that incubator and kind of, you know, I think the, the museum concept is largely done, right? There doesn't really, you know, we can continue to curate and, and put stuff in there, but my nature has always been more experimental. So why don't I step into the incubator district and facilitate more experiments, um, you know, more innovation, do different things with different people and continue, uh, you know, what excites me. How, what are you using to identify the artists to, or the, the creators to be invited into the incubator space? Um, do you have mental models? Do you have, is it sort of like, you know, uh, is there a, a feeder, you know, kind uh, of conversation? I mean, you know, we, we had a, you know, kind of like a, a public intake form for a while and, you know, we got awesome responses. It's a, it's a high technology barrier to entry to access Somnium space, right? It's always been its knock. Um, and that's true, and that'll come down over time. So, you know, 80% of the artists who applied, they had, you know, Mac computers, and it was that you just can't get in with a Mac computer. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I was too. I was always too until I, uh, you know, I purchased the equipment to do this. So, and I really only use it to, to go into to VR insomnium space. Um, but that experience is like so incredibly special. You know, I encourage anybody with the, the means to do that because it takes the understanding and the experience to a whole other level. And I love that, you know, there's crypto voxels and Decentraland so people can begin to form kind of the mental models of what these spaces will look like. Uh, but, you know, my... <sighs> I want experiential artwork and I want, you know, artwork in 3D uh, and I want to be in there and, and experiencing it as I would, um, you know, say like something near us, like Storm King, for example. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where I, I see the, the, the project heading and um, you know, we'll use the museum to kind of keep and, and hold some history, but we have so many more pieces that they need to find other places in the metaverse and we need to express 
more things. We're seeing a lot of, um, I would say like traditional entrepreneurs and traditional investors enter the space. Mark Cuban um, is one. And then you have Gary V who's another. Gary V has a huge following. Um, and the, the I'm a big, I'm a fan of Gary V. I think his energy is great for the space. I'm curious from your perspective, uh, do you view this as like, do you view this as a good, as a good thing that's happening or are you skeptical and, and sort of like, do you think a bubble's coming because of this interest? Okay. Right. Like, Ultimately, it happened a lot sooner than I would have expected, right? The past two weeks have been vertical. Um, I can point fingers and kind of begin to say like what I think is dangerous, but I don't know if that's really the, the right way to, to go about this. Um, you know, I just, at the end of the day, hope people are buying what they like. But, you know, I'm seeing in certain places a replication of the same mechanics that we saw in 2017, right? Where somebody buys something, they flip it, they tell five friends, those five friends come in the next week, buy something, you know, maybe they flip it, they tell, and it, it spreads. And then it, it becomes unsustainable. Like we've, I don't think, and then also there's this broad range of what an NFT can be, right? All the way from like digital collectibles to fine art. Now, when you start to treat art like a digital collectible um, and you're putting like fine art prices on digital collectibles. Mm, has there ever been, you know, thousands of editions of fine art, right? And like, what are you really buying? I think a lot of people don't understand what they're really buying. I just think, you know, somebody told them they can make a couple thousand bucks. So are you, are you talking about a specific product or you, you're sort of just like the industry I mean, of, in, of, of course, I'm talking about nifty gateway, right? Like, Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> Actually, I thought, so I thought you were talking about punks, uh, which I thought was interesting uh, because I, I love them. I think it's cool, but that's where like, but you're right. Um, I have a, I have a love hate relationship me personally. Uh, I love to hate on Nifty Gateway. Yeah. Uh, I think that they're, they're, they're using uh, the system wrong, in my opinion. But anyway, go ahead. You were saying. Uh, I mean, look, they've, they've, they've done incredible things for artists, right? They've, they've minted millionaires overnight. And that's cool. Right? Bad Dog Jones, four million. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, people at 3.5. Awesome. One yeah. million. Yeah, yeah. like crazy, crazy. Right. These are non-traditional artists that didn't have a history in the 
traditional art space and then they mint millionaires overnight. And I love that. But I don't know how it ends. So uh, all of those people, all of those people I've met and they're wonderful people and they deserve it, right? They, they deserve it. I think at the end of the day, there's going to be a lot of unhappy collectors. So are you, when you say end of the day, you're looking 20 years down the road. No. No. Three to six months. Okay. Okay. Why do you, why do you think that? Like, what's the. It's unsustainable. It's not sustainable. There's, there's nobody left to hold that back. Right. The prices as they are right now, like are. You know, I think what I think I think what will happen here is that the Beeple Christie's auction will attract a an art community to and I know they're beginning to take a look at this space. And I know sophisticated collectors, gallerists, they're not buying. The critique is coming, is what you're saying. I'm just saying they're not buying. Yeah. Right. I think I think when anybody with a trained eye takes a look, we will just get eviscerated. Right. We are going to get torn apart for what has happened here. Um, and I love the crypto community for its resiliency in taking care of their own and protecting their own. Um, But I don't know how much the crypto community crosses over with somebody with a credit card on an internet site. So I think there's going to be certain people that do do marketplaces. We, We see different things in different places. Uh. I have one comment on this and that's Fawocious is 18 years old. Yeah. And this is coming from a place of concern for me. It's what happens when the market and the prices are not sustainable. You know, people is, you know, a grown ass man, uh, mad dog Jones, grown ass man. When I think about ferocious, I think about an 18 year old kid who just came out of like, you know, left home and is like exploring. And this is unheard of in my, in my experience where this kind of success happens so early. Yeah. And, you know, I want nothing but the best for him, nothing but the best, but I am concerned that people are, don't have his best interest. and when when the market does shift, will they will those people be there? And I don't think so. You don't need to comment on that. I just thought like that's just. My I will. Perception. I will say, I will say because of what is behind me, right? I built a relationship with Fawocious early on, and I will be there for Fawocious always, right? And I absolutely love hearing that. Yeah, you know uh, that piece isn't going anywhere. I think what they create is beautiful. And I think it is uh, one of the most powerful, incredible stories 
Um, and all I care about is that that person is happy creating and expressing, right? And I think that's probably all they care about too. Prices will do what, what prices do. Uh, you know, artists can a lot of times attach self-worth and ego to those prices. But I hope somebody so young, and I think they do recognize this, that like, you know, this is incredible and it's, it's deserved and, um, but so mature for their age, just in the conversations that we've had together. I think there's an, an awareness that it's just like, let me create and express. And now I have the opportunity to do that more. And I think they will continue to make just beautiful, mind boggling um, artwork for the, for the rest of their career. Yeah, this is somebody who is like a pure creative and a pure explorer. Um, and just loves to create and share and has just pure, beautiful energy. Um, so. The energy is so infectious. And it, really it's, it comes right through every video you see, every post that, that is written. I hear and feel the energy coming off of that. So I, I really love that about, about Ferocious. Uh, what, what other artists are you sort of like keen on or are you, you peeping right now or checking out? Oh man. I don't know, it's so different now. I'm I'm at this stage I'm just kind of opportunistic, right? I like getting in there and kind of getting somebody's first piece. I've had a couple of those lately. You know, I was able to get like Slime Sunday's first NFT and and John Norlander's uh first NFT on Super Rare. Those are those are cool pickups. Um So you're going after rookie cards now. <laughs> kind of like yeah yeah you know i i yeah um you know what i did did last night which is totally random is i went back to remember eth words yeah, yeah yeah i went back and just scooped up some eth words i thought those were cool um i always like you know i'm very contrarian right? I like to be on the opposite side of a trade. So if an ETH word is like 15 bucks and it, it's like, it's buy and sell, like, I think that's cool. I'm going to put those together as an art piece on a wall. Um, yeah. And I, I just had the, I love the idea of all these words as NFTs being on, on walls. Um, I don't think the use case has been created for what, what can happen with ETH words yet. And I think somebody's going to find them and build art pieces on top of that project and i think it's gonna be beautiful it would be super you know how they have those like fridge magnets it would be super cool if everybody like put a word and like wrote a little poem or a story i, I mean that's a nice little eth words community project right there that's that's a that's a dap game right there i think yeah yeah um so all to say that like you know words are are powerful you know, words in and of themselves are art. Like I was having, you know, reactions to like when I saw um, like the word hopeless and, you know, is, is, and then to like put a $10 value on that. I don't know. I don't, you know, it's, 
we're really beginning to blur the lines of, you know, value in art and, you know, what is just the power of having that thing there. And, you know, is, I know like Token Angels, for yeah, example, yeah. bought the word PAK, P-A-K for 10 ETH, um, which, you know, like to each their own. I, uh, do you think that there is sort of like a performance art aspect as a collector to putting value on like a $10 value on like the word hopeless? Like, do you get that? <laughs> I view what I do as art for sure. You know, like I just pin this to my uh, Twitter profile, but you know, autonomous artifacts bought back. I think they had probably the first like nil creation. And I, I bid $0 on it. It's like Colborn Bell has bid z about $0 on nothing. And I just conceptually, I like that. And, you know, we've always had fun, you know, doing numbered bids in the market. Um, and it's, it's not like an investment thing. This is just an art experiment, right? Let's, let's talk about a bid that's coming to mind right now uh, that, that, took uh i think took a lot of heat it was pax red pixel yeah isn't that so like quaint in retrospect it, but it was <laughs> totally totally like the way the way that things are being sold now but that was yeah. a massive that was a massive bit i think it was was it 30 55 55 000 uh, based on the eth that was that the eth price at the time no it was 29 ethereum it was seven thousand eight hundred bucks 29 ethereum oh maybe um, I was, wow came back we came back you know like a week later and bought the alpha pixel for 55.5 thank you ethereum. thank you for correcting me yes yeah um you know red was red was conscious right we saw a a stagnant market right we saw all of these things trading hands 100 200 300 bucks Nobody was pushing anything higher. It didn't. So, you know, Pac told us red is meant to provoke. Like, let's, let's do this. You know, let's just like our collection is at a point where we are, are happy. Um, let's provoke because, you know, you. Oh, and you, you provoked. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 you know, it was, it was great. It was great. It was that whole thing was art in and of itself. I mean, um, I myself created a whole uh, bunch of, you know, remixes of that poking fun. You know, yeah, that's what we did. One of I mean, Crypto Yuna did an incredible I think it was Crypto Yuna of like a, uh, you know, a stick figure with a shopping cart. And it's like, it goes by a red pixel on the wall. It's like, I'll take that seven grand, you know, I'll take the alpha pixel like 55 ETH. Oh, some Rari. I'll take that. And it's like, I, I bought all the, you know, like I loved the the commentary on that piece. It's, it's, yeah. You There's see, the you commentary know. seems to come like the commentary on the space really seems to come from uh, the trash art crew quite a bit. Uh, yeah. I think it happens elsewhere too, but I think it's, it's sometimes it's really consolidated there. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's part of our job too, is to like hold the space in check. 100%. 100%. Yeah. yeah. You know, Do you, I will satire, be remiss. Yeah. Like satire. The, yeah. The art as satire. I love it. Yeah. Um, the memes. I love the potato. Incredible. 
um, like a potato. Yeah, it's just great. It's great. Like even even Max's, you know, million edition mint of like the rose gold potato. Uh, I love that, that. was. Yeah, they did. I think he minted four hundred thousand of that at like for, five bucks. I don't even know what it was, but that was the impetus for the people's potato because I was yeah. having a conversation with Max and Zach from Super Rare. Yep. And Zach was commenting about how um, something along the lines of like making a snide remark about the 400,000. I was like, you know what? And, and I didn't say this publicly, but in my mind, I was like, I'm going to fucking mint a billion of these. Why not? <laughs> right. Why not? So you've done some art in the space. I mean, you've, you've created art. Have you minted anything yet? And if you, if you haven't, will you ever? So I've done some one-off pieces, um, but, you know, I told you I, I dyed those bills, right? And I... Uh, That's what I was thinking about, those bills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, like six months ago, I scanned them all and had them just sitting on my computer. And then, you know, I just kind of saw collectibles were you know, the thing to be doing. So I just, I just minted them and threw them out there. Right. And I had, I guess the good fortune that, you know, OXB1, one of like the largest DeFi whales just came in and, and swooped, I don't know, 10 or 12. Uh, and then there were some other DeFi collectors that came on the back of that. And then I just kind of gave them away, some of them away to artists and people that I respect. What I want to do is I want to go build like the magic internet money federal reserve in Somnium space. Uh, and, you know, on the outside, it'll look like the federal reserve building. And on the inside, it'll just be covered in these bills. And I think in VR, that'll make for just an awesome experience. Um, and then, you know, when this series runs out, so I'll probably mint a uh, hundred more. Right. And I'll, I'll give them away. And then we'll just like keep printing this magic internet money and kind of giving it away or people can buy it as they want to, to people that I touch along the way. Tell me about magic internet money. Um, where does that come from? Well, that's the old, of course, like, you know, Reddit Bitcoin meme. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar. It's like, a, a you know, a, a Microsoft Paint wizard with a staff that, that went totally viral. Uh, and... I was not familiar, and I imagine that uh, there are some new people coming into the space that might not be as well. Yeah, yeah, check check that meme out. I mean, that was the initial meme that skyrocketed Bitcoin's price. So, and you know, I I obviously symbolically like a couple things about this project. I like that it's a Japanese art technique applied to you know Western currency. Right. I like that it invites like reimagination of what money is. People always ask me, like, can I go spend this? I'm like, well, you know, try. And I, I'm pretty sure a hundred times out of a hundred, people would take that over a dollar bill. Right. Um, so I like the aspect of like added value or or perceived value. I also kind of like the the counter culture aspect of like defacing currency <laughs> um and you know who knows may land me whatever um there is yeah. a there is an illegal aspect to that isn't there right because it's 
property of the federal government sort of like kind of thing, right? So from kind of like the, the way I understand it, right, is if you can't use it as currency, if you deface it to a point where you can't use it as currency, that is a crime. Um, but I've, I've never met anybody that wouldn't accept it. So I don't. Think, okay, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, I don't think. I mean, you're a lawyer, right? No, no. no. Oh, that must be somebody else. That's Colin. Colin, sure. So yeah. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll hire Colin to uh, to defend me. <laughs> that's. A, I uh, I'm gonna have to keep a lookout for some of those uh, minted bills out there. Yeah, I'll send you one, man. Oh, that'd be awesome. I'd love that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'll send you one. That's cool. You've collected a few of my pieces in the past. I think it was during like the trash art era. Um, I had somebody ask me today how. Okay, so here's here's a one of what uh, somebody that you collected back in the day asked me, "Hey, who is this Colburn Colborn guy? Do you know him?" Yeah, which is really interesting because you both have been in the space for two years, right? And it's I find it kind of amazing that not everybody knows everybody. So I said, you know, he was trying to come up with a way to connect with his audience again. So what he was doing was reviewing who bought his stuff. Yep. You know, and I said, hey, listen, you know, I think the first thing you should do is see who has some of your old stuff for sale you know, and pump them at the collector and your pieces start to begin yeah. to build a floor again. What's what's some advice you have for like new artists who are just coming into the space and want to connect with the, an audience and want to build sort of and grow, you know, sales? Yeah, obviously, it's incredibly difficult right now. You know, the the only thing you can be is genuine in yourself and, and put your art forward. Um, you know, do I, I, I probably get 10, 20 artists a day now popping into DMs and, and saying, please check out my stuff. And like, I personally love when people come and say like, hey, I've looked through your projects. I really respect your project. I love your collection. I'd love to give you something. <laughs> right? Like, that's cool. Like, you know, like, I guess it's, you know, real recognizes real, like you see me, okay, like, let me now see you. Um, you know, at the end of the day, if, if I had all the money in the world, I would buy all the art in the world, right? I don't, you know, like a, a really a, an, a lot of what I had, I put into this. Um, so yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in like a, uh, you know, I got to sell something to buy something phase. <laughs> and it's cool, you know, it's, it's all this very interesting things of like people starting and coming up or people with audiences coming in and like whale, new whales coming on top and like scooping up old inventory. And I love this like feeder aspect of it. But, you know, my passion and, and my heart is always like, being there first and, and being that like first validator. Um, and I've done that with like a, a lot of people. It's cool to touch people's lives at that first stage. 
right? And because they feel seen and they feel heard and they feel that their expression is valid um, and you, you, you can't beat that feeling. You can't, and I can, I can attest to that. When you enter the space, or at least when I entered the space, um, getting those first bids, get, you know, that's, that's a form of recognition. Uh, then yeah. you begin to learn sort of like how to price your work and where, where people see it, uh, when to accept it, that kind of stuff. But it's good to, it's so good to feel that you're being seen. That's an important part of the, the creative process for being an artist. And I really applaud you for having that perspective because there are people coming in today who are purely about ROI. That's okay. Yeah. You know, that's part of the cycle. Right. Uh, but uh, you know, I think that you're doing, you're doing the good work still in, in, you know, touching so many artists lives. And I want to thank you for that. Uh, really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about some really awesome stuff with me. Uh, we, you know, I made sure I hit the hard questions, but I really wanted to get into who you were and how you think. And I think we did that. I think we, you know, really uh, dug into who you are and I love it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, man. It's, it's been a pleasure. I, I love connecting with you this way and, and thank you for doing these things because I think it's really important work. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to touch on uh, before we go that you want to chill or share and let people know that's happening? I could talk for hours. <laughs> you know, like, I wake up every day, like so passionate and falling in love with something new in the space and the way it's changing and like having a little bit of a voice, like is it's cool. Um, you know, I just want to, yeah, tell everybody out there that it's, it's pretty random. And again, you're going to face like rejection at so many different stages and you're not going to feel that you're worthy and like um you know never tie your your artwork to how somebody is is bidding on it um because if it's not today then it's tomorrow um so like you know stay positive stay motivated you know come here make friends spread good vibes and love and you know, express yourself. It's, it's just generally crazy difficult times that we're living in. Um, so, you know, at, at the end of the day, if we can just like come back to each other and remember, you know, something, something human as we like metaform into these, you know, tech human hybrids and neuralink ourselves up into you know all of this like like let's remember a bit of uh, our own humanity i love it let's let's leave that there i think uh, that's perfectly said thank you for joining the show